slap a can of beans and throw it at your mama. It's Wolf the Dog here to give you bad advice regarding your parental figures. And I'm coming at you dead. From 694.2 PTBP, the only radio station that utilizes a bean-based biofuel to make the electricity absolutely electric, my babies. We, uh, we also use coal, apparently. People still use coal? That shit is nasty. What is not nasty is that this edition of Howlin' with Wolf is from Jack. Jack tweeted about the show and tagged at PretendingPod, which is one of the greatest feats a tweet can achieve. They write, My dearest wolf, in times like this, it is such a comfort to listen to your news from contention, murderous ooze, orphan experiments, inscrutable aliens, blood magic feds, spine-ripping robot balls, the unspeakable horror come to eat the world. These terrors keep the even larger daily ones at bay for an hour or so, and for that I am grateful. Even when the world's a dumpster fire, you still find us all the scrumptious, unscorched, slop to slurp. Love to my contention folks, Jack. <laughs> hey there, Jack. I always love when a fan of mine talks about slurping that slop. It makes my orifices tingle with anticipation. My pores ooze with... Uh, uh, ooze. If you want me to read your words on a segment similar to this one, similar because it would be on this exact same segment, go on and tag at Pretending Pod or write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and report that review to your wolfie at pretendingpod at gmail.com. I promise I definitely read all of them and it's not forced on my producer. I'm fucking hungry, y'all. And speaking of the rich... We're rich with theme songs in this final recap of season one of Pretending to be People here at 694.2 PTBB, Contingent's newest and only radio station. But I'll arouse the menage a trois with a banger. Banger? Barely newer. It's Dream Girl with Pretty Sexual. <laughs> Tops of trees, thick enough to obscure any view of what was below, covered in a layer of kudzu, seemed to go on endlessly. Up and down, over hills and valleys, mountains and gorges, there was nothing but dense, verdant forest. A circular, calm lake found itself somewhere in the midst of this lush wilderness, and in the middle of that lake, a small island with less than a quarter mile from shore to shore. A long wooden dock on the north side of the island led to a charming two-story boathouse with six well-kept cedar canoes tied up below the second-story apartment. 
If the island was the face of a clock, that dock was at high noon. There were six cute, cozy little cottages evenly dispersed along the shore of the island at one o'clock, three o'clock, five o'clock, seven o'clock, nine o'clock, and eleven o'clock. Five of the six cottages were in pristine condition. The 11 o'clock place might have been too, but it was impossible to tell from the outside since the entire building was covered by a massive blue tarp. Truly mastercraft landscaping surrounded each of these cottages. Stunningly gorgeous flowers in every shade and shape filled varied gardens and planters that somehow both overran the terrain and complemented it perfectly. Each cottage had a cobblestone walkway lined on either side by these lovely flower beds and the walkways all made their way to the center of the island where a large, equally cute and cozy hexagonal building sat. There was a small welcome sign on the south side of this building right at six o'clock, and it read, Welcome to Calm, Comfy Campground. The circle of knowledge used this land, isolated by both geography and some sort of unnatural perimeter, to execute a brainchild of Jim Cook called Operation Hole Puncher. This operation utilized the potent pheromone from their newly developed experimental family of flowers named Sanfera Blom. This pheromone made the uninoculated unnaturally suggestible. The targets of this mission were so malleable, entire backstories could be prescribed in order to extract specific information. Roger Fairfield, an archaeologist with access to a new excavation site designated the Nameless City, was made to believe he was married to a woman named Angela, actually played by Anne Love. Alan Grimes, a child trafficker with government contracts, was convinced a boy from one of his warehouses was an artificial intelligence. Each mark had something the circle of knowledge wanted. Charles Digby had enough compromising evidence to blackmail every important person in the city. Martin Cupertino was in the midst of creating Cube, the future of personal technology. Pliable guests were duped into signing extensive contracts. The aim of Operation Hole Puncher was to acquire as much information and access as possible. But the system didn't always work smoothly. Groups would sometimes trigger reality for each other. They would need to be reset. With Fairfield, the Grimes, Digby, and Cupertino, even the fifth reset didn't quite stick. And Cupertino somehow escaped before the sixth reset. He was an anomaly. And of course, there were some folks who refused to share their secrets regardless of their altered state. A completely random example would be Eunice and Jerry Bishop, who at the time possessed a rare and specifically sought after book. No matter what Jim Cook, Leon Simpson, or Anne Love tried, friendship, torture, worse, the bishops never surrendered their knowledge of where the book was hidden. This is the kind of environment in which young Maggie Cook was raised. She quickly found her life much more interesting when the victims suspected or saw reality through their flower-induced haze. So she began to play her own games with the temporary tenants. 
It started innocently enough. She would talk to Circle of Knowledge members when they were undercover with a mark. Then she planted walkie-talkies in the cottages to taunt the visitors. But little Maggie eventually took it upon herself to actually inoculate guests while they slept. She was bored. And some kids just like to watch the chaos they've created. She watched from the roof of a cottage the night she first saw the thing that lived in the brackish waters of Lake Calm. The six of them paddled the three canoes like their lives depended on it. Jack Russell always says, to do a canoe. She wondered if it was the last thing he said. An unspeakable worm-like abomination erupted above the surface of the water. The thing rose ten feet out of the ichor. It was tube-like, covered in a squamous, black, partially translucent membrane. Its body was segmented, and toxically green pulsating arteries and veins were visible through its thin-looking exterior. It had no identifiable eyes or nose, and its cavernous, circular mouths, one sat just inside the other, were lined with hooked teeth, and it spit out a saliva that was somehow darker than black. From its maw, a sharp stylet protruded like something between a tongue and a noodle-like needle. It plunged down, attached to the top of Jack Russell's head, and ripped him up and out of the back of the canoe. The thing sucked the short, portly man into its round, teeth-encircled mouth before it slipped quickly and quietly back into the pitch-black water of Lake Calm. (sighs) She half expected Jack Russell to be standing at six o'clock the next day, with that dumb, blank expression on his face like all the others would after a reset. She liked watching their faces change. It was impossible to tell, even for her, if it was their last time being greeted by that sign. Welcome to Calm Comfy Campground. John Lee Pettymore IV, Clark Bishop, and Keith Vigna felt eyes on them, all over them, outside of their own bodies, floating in this vast nothingness. They saw Keith Vigna open a door, and Tildy B. Mitchell was there on the other side, curled up in the fetal position, and her body began deteriorating hastily, like she had leprosy and time lapse. However, she grew larger with each passing moment. Clark Bishop handed an old piece of parchment to a young boy with a balloon-shaped head and eyes so dark that the irises looked black, and immediately the boy's feet caught fire and the fire grew and grew to consume the young black-eyed boy and three voices cried out in pain. John Lee Pettymore IV crouched down, stared at a television, a blank white screen. 
He reached out and touched the screen like Vanna White, but instead of a letter popping up, Clark Bishop's parents, Eunice and Jerry, the size of action figures, jumped out of the screen and ran up John Lee Pettymore IV's arm, climbed his shoulder, and fling their tiny selves into John's head. It looked like the bishops were going to disappear right into Pettymore's brain, but they both got stuck halfway in. Their legs writhed about and flailed in this never-ending dreamscape. Oily, viscous sludge began dripping and then sprayed out of John Lee Pettymore IV's head where the bishops had lodged themselves and the ooze began collecting on a ground below then made of light and the ooze dripped, dripped, dripped and then poured until a laminar flow connected the head of John Lee Pettymore IV to a pool of this inky substance that began shaping itself into a large saucer. But as the pool grew, the walls began rising outward, creating an imposingly colossal bowl, and our view was forced to back up leagues as this shape continued to form a mirror of what was then below. The minuscule body of John Lee Pettymore in the far distance continued to fill this thing's final form, an incomprehensibly massive sphere, and it continued to grow and grow, and then... The three contention boys woke up in the mausoleum for the third time in shock, cursed with the memories of their recent trip to City State University. Their stomachs were strangely full, their ears rang, and their eyes adjusted to the dark, cold tomb. A turned-over coffin sat next to a pool of blood on the ground. John Lee Kevin Moore III in black tactical gear, Keith Vigna in his bright polo and bow shoes, and Clark Bishop in an old contention PD uniform. All felt the searing pain where names had been burned into their skin. Marvin on each chest was still crossed out. Maggie on the sole of each left foot was now crossed out as well. The other two names on their backs and inside their dominant hands read respectively Drew and Tildy. It was 3 p.m. on December 6th. Two hours had passed since their last experience waking up next to Ari Manstein's corpse. They walked out into the light past the three downed androids near the crawfish boil and decided to return to contention, determined to cross Drew off their list. As they departed from the funeral setting, the massive, gaunt creature reappeared, screaming, and they took off running. At the entrance, they ran into the old woman in the wheelchair. With massive, deranged eyes, she sobbed at the sight of the repeating men. John Lee Kevin Moore pushed her wheelchair toward the parking lot. The creature had no hair, big red pupils, eye slits that opened from the bottom, and it wore a familiar black suit, cried out into the sky as it pursued the group from behind. (laughs) John gave the old woman his gun as they approached the empty parking lot. Empty, that was, until a red 2001 Mitsubishi Eclipse drifted across the lot toward them. And all could see behind the wheel sat Drew Andrews, the baby Drewver. Behind them, the creature spoke, and it somehow forced everyone to freeze in place. Their bodies locked, and they turned to face the creature. It didn't speak aloud, but they heard it inside their heads. It apologized and spoke of a glitch. 
There could not be two Clark Bishops. The creature addressed each former officer by name and revealed Keith's full name, Ashley Keith Beans. He became flustered and pulled his gun, but he couldn't fire. Clark's face turned red with rage, unable to move, and Kevin Moore twitched helplessly. The creature thought inside their heads, implored them not to be afraid, and a calming wave overtook each upset man. The old woman, finally at peace, closed her eyes and exhaled for the last time. Drew whipped the car around, saw the creature, and screeched to a stop a few feet away. The creature repeated itself in their minds. It sought information on the Clark glitch and was willing to trade knowledge. It introduced itself as 43629 DC FBI and it confirmed it was alien, better than human, from Myriad. Keith pulled out the ring they retrieved from Jim Cook's house and claimed to be Jim trapped in Keith's body. The creature from Myriad was ecstatic to hear this news and was quick to communicate something in its strange manner to seemingly no one in sight. When Clark asked how Jim and the creature knew each other, it confirmed they worked together at Myriad. John convinced 43629 to reveal more information about its discreet co-worker so they could do something nice for him on his birthday. The creature obliged. Jim's birthday was on December 1st and he always visited Prairie Pie in the city. The creature asked if Jim was in Keith's body to repair the relationship between Myriad and just James in regards to Operation Sanfera Blom. He said yes. Clark told the creature what they knew about Clarkold, and the alien reached out its long arm toward the group to wipe their memories of this conversation. It didn't work, but believing it had, 43629 just turned and left. As Drew pulled around in front of the group, he leaned out the window, a, a bit too cool for Drew. Hello, contention police officers. Please get in the car and come with me. The gang, excited to see Drew, hopped in and took off. Drew let them know he'd been unable to receive any calls or texts due to having gotten wet, which destroyed his phone. The contention boys explained John Lee Kevin Moore the Thirst's whole situation, that they've killed or soon will kill Marvin Glass, and that Keith killed the Duke, which was actually Keith's brother, Ferguson Beans. Drew ran down the current state of contention. Pastor Adam Kane, a.k.a. Daddy, took control of the town. The First Creek Family of Contention created a network of puddles for the survivors to hop into if they saw the residue, which only animals, kids, and insane people can see. They captured the ooze using fish, and Daddy Pastor Kane collected it in a central location. They hatched a plan to grab the watch from Keith's room at Hotel Motel, but after extensive questioning, the boys smelled something fishy in Drew's attitude and speech. John Lee Kevin Moore the Thirth's eyes rolled into the back of his head, and he thought real hard about whether or not they should trust Drew. Deep 
in the void of John's memories where they reached out and met the collective unconscious. John saw a reflection of his father, John Lee Pettymore III, in a blank television screen, but he was much younger than the body John currently inhabited back in reality. The TV turned on, and the screen showed the contention police station as it was last seen, an absolute wreck with water pooled everywhere. The channel changed. Jim Cook briefed three people, and John recognized the faces from the file in Marvin Glass's compound labeled K-Cell. Kyle, Karen, and Kevin. Kyle, the unknown who died at Kevin's forced hand. Karen, also known as Ann Love, the woman who killed Clark Bishop's parents. And Kevin, John's daddy, John Lee Pettymore III. On the television screen, Jim called Karen over to speak privately, and the channel changed. Back in the mess of a police department, Drew leaned on a plastic service cart and headed to the evidence locker. He loaded up the radio, the helmet, and a briefcase that contained $5 million, his cut from the deal with the Duke. The channel changed again. Drew pushed the loaded cart up through the now emptied sanctuary of the First Church of Contention. The TV turned off with a click. The charcoal glass of the screen rolled down like a car window as Karen screamed, Where is it? Clark's parents, Eustace and Jerry Bishop, at gunpoint, refused to tell Anne Love what she wanted to know. Behind the lowered screen of the television sat a book made of strange, uncured leather with hair and maybe a few freckles. John blinked. The television screen suddenly looked completely normal again. He stared at his father's reflection. Karen laughed maniacally as she shoved the gun into Jerry's mouth. She forced Eustace to watch. John felt a decision being made inside himself. Kevin turned to Karen. The book isn't here. Karen's eyes lit up as she began chanting in an alien ancient tongue. And Clark's parents began to rise off the thick carpet on the floor of their living room. John's vision again changed perspective completely. A man's left hand was outstretched. A trickle of red flowed across the soft skin. Suddenly, Drew leaned in and kissed a ring on a finger that dripped with blood. John came to in the car and asked Drew to pull over as convincingly as he could without arousing suspicion, which amounted to pleading and saying he was about to shit his pants. After some resistance, Drew pulled off down a quiet road next to an empty cornfield. And as soon as the car stopped, John pulled out his gun and aimed it at Drew. John demanded the keys and Clark put him in handcuffs. John explained his vision as they gave him a pat down. Drew confessed he was tortured and forced to give the items to the church. In their search, they discovered a small, cheap piece of carpet in Drew's pocket. Apparently, he would intentionally choke himself with it in order to see things he shouldn't be able to. Apparently, that's how he was able to find the boys at the city cemetery. Keith shoved the carpet in Drew's mouth and said, Tildy B. Mitchell. 
Drew choked for a few minutes. When he caught his breath, he told them she was still alive, but she was trapped somewhere she can't escape. In the distance, Drew noticed a black lab bounding up to them, and with reckless joy, he screamed out, Tyler! Well, Tyler, a black lab that belonged to Councilwoman Carrie Pages, had gone missing on December 2nd, and Drew's face brimmed with affection as he gushed that Tyler was the bestest dog that had ever existed, and he was afraid Tyler had been eaten by homeless people. Clark noticed the slip-up. Drew repeated verbatim what Councilwoman Carrie Pages had said several days before. Keith tricked Drew into admitting she was, in fact, Carrie Pages. Exposed, Drew Carrie spilled the details about how they switched bodies at the church with the radio under Daddy Kane's direction. The contention boys struck a deal with Drew Carey. She would be a double agent for them. They threw the handcuffed Drew Carey into the trunk and took off. Tyler, the black lab, sat comfortably in the passenger seat. Their destination, Hotel Motel. Their goal, acquire the watch in Keith's room safe that he took off his dead brother's wrist. The same watch their father, William Beans, had given Ferguson so many years before. As they approached contention, they reached a blockade made of church pews with a sign that pointed off to the side and indicated the path of a detour. The group pulled over, continued on foot, and left Drew Carey in the trunk. Unsurptitiously, the boys traveled along the highway. In the distant skyline, a massive wall of water surrounded the property of the First Church of Contention. Clark stared. He couldn't contain his obsession with the fish flopping around inside this enormous, unnatural water wall. At Hotel Motel, all of the doors were open. A dunking booth sat in the middle of the parking lot, and a young, larger boy with round cheeks sat precariously atop the trapdoor-style chair. He stuffed his face with cheesy ziti and surveyed the area. This Omnami lookout was easily fooled by Keith's quick disguise. Mud spread across his face like a beard. The inside of Keith's room at Hotel Motel was ransacked, but luckily his safe and the watch inside it had remained hidden. He stuffed the watch in his pocket and left, but when Keith rejoined the group, he handed the watch to John, who promptly put it on. As the watch slid on, John's consciousness phased out of reality like a TV changed channels. He found himself in contention as it was in the 1880-somethings. All the wet grass suddenly dried, the dirt turned to dust, and he saw a man face down, unmoving. Suddenly, he saw a mostly buried metal door with an inscription that read, Pettymore Forevermore. The watch slid off. John shared his experience with the others and slapped the watch on Clark, who saw the same foreboding vision. But instead of John's door, Clark saw Chief Maggie Cook's house floating in the air, his door buried within, and the inscription read 152251819558, the numbers for the overseer. Another watch swap. Keith saw the same scene in the Old West just outside the new town of Contention. 
He saw a man face down in the dust, unmoving. He saw his hands tremble, and he rolled the body over. The man was dead. A trifolded piece of parchment fell out of the man's pocket. It was a job advertisement that read, We is hiring able bodies, readying untapped sight. Plenty of work, hesitate not. The watch slid off Keith's arm and he let out a small scream. Clark tripped over the edge of sanity and pinned Keith to the ground. He ripped off the watch and threw it away, but John grabbed it and slapped it back on his own wrist. The watch traded hands several more times back and forth before they found out that by joining hands, they could all share the foreboding sights. They saw Tildy B. Mitchell walk slowly backwards into Bean's Pond steadily until the water rose above her head and she disappeared from sight. The channel changed. They sat in a tavern, their own face reflected in the mirror behind the bar, but they wore the thick hand-stitched clothes of the dead man from out on that old dusty road. The barmaid refilled their glass and attempted some friendly small talk. So, you're the new miner in town. Who rode ahead looking for a room? The three men, each in their own vision, affirmed her query with a nod. Well, welcome to contention, Silas Cole. Another channel change. A hooded figure lurked in the shadows. Suddenly, light flooded in and illuminated a decrepit and haggard Clark Bishop. Inside this tomb, he read a strange book made from uncured leather. Blood dripped from the spine. A tall, gaunt creature entered and croaked out in its unnatural speech. Hello, subject 152251819551818. Please give me the book. The two figures charged each other, and a blinding light cleansed the interior of the tomb. Just then, the three contention officers entered the empty mausoleum. They carried the casket of Ari Manstein. They sat it down gently and closed the door behind them as they left. After a bright flash of light, the scene changed. Three individuals, two humans, and one towering translucent creature in a black suit stood in an old abandoned warehouse. Moonlight streamed in from the cracks and holes in the roof and reflected in puddles of stagnant water on the ground. The creature from Myriad handed a manila envelope to the two humans, a man and a woman. Inside, there was a drawing on a small piece of paper. It was a circle encircled by six circles. Another bright flash of light, James the Millworker dragged these two now lifeless bodies. From above, they saw the two corpses at the bottom of a man-made pit, and then there was a time-lapse of the bodies as they bloated and changed color. Until Clark Bishop fell into the pit, a final flash of light revealed Chief Maggie Cook. She gave orders to a looming overweight man in an all-black combat uniform. He had a large scar over his right eye. Charged with his mission, the android created by Myriad headed off to James the Millworker's house. 
After the visions from William Beans's watch, they returned to the real world and stepped back from each other. Clark saw the black ooze pouring out of John Lee Kevin Moore III. It dripped from his eyes, ears, and mouth, all the way down to his hands. It was on Clark and Keith's too, and a string of ooze bridged all six of their hands, drizzled down, and collected on the ground. It moved toward Clark, but he blinked and it was gone. A truck nearby idled, and a man's voice hollered, All right, come on out of there, Randy. We can do this the easy way, or you can disappear. How much worse can you possibly get? You don't want to give Daddy a shot? He can go back and fix everything back to normal. We need more bodies, Randy. Keith recognized the voice of Terrence Elizabeth Licker from Licker's Liquors as he shouted, at Randy angst. Keith Vigna, angry, relayed that Licker had shorted him three dollars and shook up his beer. They headed toward the voice, guns out with Vigna in front. Keith made his way to the side of the house and peeked at the idle truck. The truck bed, layered with tarps, was filled with water and fish, as well as Jimmy Sanders, the manager of Subtropolis and John Lee Pettymore's cousin, who called in the oil spill several days earlier. His eyes were wide and wild, and he muttered something about a number four with no tomato. Keith ran for the keys of the truck and turned it off. John popped out to get Jimmy's attention and the hippie's eyes widened. Terrified at the sight of John, he dipped down into the water. Clark looked into the living room and watched T. Licker and another man, Luca, Fade, Fudgevitz, shove Randy Anks down onto the carpet. When the truck shut off, the two men turned their attention outside. Inside the truck, Keith opened the glove box and found a mag light and a folded up picture of himself, Keith Vigna, with an inscription that read, Collect Alive. John attempted to pull Jimmy Sanders out of the water, but Jimmy dove right back in. Fade and Luca saw John and Keith as they exited the house. Fade approached Keith, crowbar drawn, and Luca reached into his back pocket. Clark crept inside and told Randy Angst to find cover. Keith drew his gun, pointed it at his own head, and threatened to fire if they moved. John, with no grace whatsoever, shot Fade in the shoulder, yelled to drop their weapons, and used the truck as cover. Luca dropped the crowbar and left a trail of blood along the white paint as he slumped back into the garage door and then down onto the driveway. Terrence Licker pressed his gun against his own head. Think you can play games with me? Clark sprang from behind, grabbed the gun of tea liquor, and wrestled him to the ground. Keith smashed Terrence in the mouth with his own mag light and sent teeth flying out into Randy Ank's front yard. John zip-tied Luca's hands together, and Clark retrieved the loose gun on the driveway. Keith rolled liquor over, grabbed his wallet, removed three $1 bills, and smiled. Beat and shaken, Terrence explained they gathered bodies for Daddy Pastor Kane to sacrifice so he could go back in time to fix everything. Daddy said Keith Vigna was especially important. John shoved the piece of carpet from Drew Carey into Terrence's mouth and demanded, Daddy. A few seconds of choking later, he coughed it up, looked at John Lee Kevin Moore the third and 
freaked out. You're one of them. It's in you. John caught a brief reflection of himself in the rearview mirror. Black ooze ran out of his eyes, nose, and ears. He dove into the truck bed pool, the teeming puddle with Jimmy Sanders. John felt the strangest sensation. His head vibrated and heated up, and then a sudden feeling of comfort washed through his cranial cavities. He resurfaced. There was an overpowering smell of rancid fish, and John vomited back in the water in which he and Jimmy stood. Jimmy looked over calmly, unafraid of John for the first time, and in the lull, Randy stumbled out of his house, but something was off. Randy didn't remember the encounter with the robot man at James the Millworker's house, but he did say Pastor Kane had been a real dick since he lost his family in that car accident a few days ago. Terrence blamed the crash on the three contention police officers, and Clark, Keith, and John noticed Randy's cane was topped with a Rubik's Cube instead of a tooth. It was clear that this somehow wasn't the same Randy angst. Similar, sure, but their angst was a dentist and a realtor and the head of the Contention Historical Society and a lover. This Randy angst was the director of the Children's Museum? The trio, disassociated with their current reality, acted a bit rashly. Clark barged into the house, knocked Randy to the ground, and screamed into his face about who he was and who he was not. Keith pulled his gun, fired wildly, and put a stray bullet directly through Fade's head. Pushed further past the brink, he noticed the ooze that dripped down John's face. Keith aimed the gun at John and ordered him to get back in the water. Clark smashed Ankh's head into the linoleum floor, then realized what he was doing and meekly apologized as he backed out of the house. John resurfaced, momentarily rid of the ooze that consistently dripped from his orifices, if one was in a certain frame of mind. And off in the distance, they heard the rumble of vehicles. The contention police posse piled into the truck and drove off, intent to grab their original car, Drew Carey, and head to Bean's Pond. John took the driver's seat, Keith called shotgun, and Clark jumped in the truck bed to play with the fish. Suddenly, two vehicles approached, one from either end of the street, a truck with a hot tub in tow, and an Impala with a refrigerator on its side strapped to the top. In the Impala, John could see Asher and Avery Little, the parents of the two children that were absorbed by the goo in front of James the Millworker's house. John punched it into reverse, cut through a field, and the two cars attempted to tail. One sweet handbrake 180 later, John hit the road unaccompanied, foot all the way down on the gas. They pulled along Agent Trent Chad's red 2001 Mitsubishi Eclipse where they left Drew Carey, and Clark hopped out of the truck bed, sprinted to the trunk, and threw Drew Carey and Tyler, the black lab, into the fish-filled tarp tub truck bed. The two vehicles in pursuit were able to catch up while the unlikely protagonists collected their co-worker's body and their double agent's dog. But a gruesome scream came 
from the Impala refrigerator as the Littles pulled up. Glass shattered. A body was snatched up and slammed into the side of the nearby truck. That truck's driver climbed out the window and attempted to jump into the hot tub, but something nabbed his foot and dangled him mid-air. A blink revealed the thickest wave of ooze yet. The driver, being slowly consumed by the inky substance, desperately grabbed onto the man already in the hot tub, only to seal his fate as well. The ooze ripped the two men up into the sky and slammed them down into the concrete below repeatedly, leaving bright red smears across the cold ground. With the whole group somehow intact, John Lee Kevinmore III peeled away. In his rearview mirror, John saw the incomprehensibly massive wave of ooze crashing forward, slowly but relentlessly toward their vehicle. They soon reached a roadblock. A crane, loaded heavily with construction tube pipes, intentionally blocked the highway. John went to whip the truck around the obstruction, but a tire caught an edge. The truck turned over, smashed into the ground, and all five occupants were thrown clear of the vehicle. The truck continued to roll, tumbled into a billboard for Al's Tires and Tigers, and exploded. The discombobulated set of sitting ducks saw Gary Daly emerge from a storm drain. He shrieked and hollered for them to join him in the sewers. As they looked back, the officers saw a massive surge of ooze, bigger than any they had seen before, and it steadily flowed toward them. Clark picked up Drew's unconscious body and carried it toward Gary, who had popped his head out of the storm drain. A disoriented Keith got up from on top of Jimmy Sanders, and he and John helped him toward the sewer with Tyler on their heels. After they confirmed Gary's identity with a fact only he would know, the wrecked crew dove down into the drain. Gary, eyes covered by his hands, explained that the goo only chased you if you looked at it. Gary led the group through the tunnels while they discussed John's body swap situation. Also, Gary was tripping a bit, apparently so he could see the goo when he needed to. He was especially perturbed by the goo that dripped from John's orifices. Gary expressed how much he'd been hoping to see them since the events of the last couple days. He described how the pastor put up a wall of water around his church, developed a strong following in the town, got everyone to start calling him daddy, and said he would be able to go back in time to fix everything as long as they got a hold of Keith Vigna. Gary then pointed them toward a blog post from Harold Dorsey that had been wiped from the internet. The post was entitled, Operation Samfara Blom and a Rogue Police Chief in Contention. It described Dorsey's experiences in The Scrap Pit and The Den of Sin, as well as his new investigation in Contention. Maggie had been in touch to, quote, open people's eyes and talk to him about Samfara Blum, the flowers in the city, Jim Cook, the circle of knowledge, Barcore, and the mill on the other side of the city. Maggie appeared spooked by the murder of her father and called off the arranged meeting, so Harold was going to find her. The boys confirmed this was all true. Gary said he could get them wherever they needed to go through the tunnels. So they set off for Maggie's house and Bean's Pond. 
On the way, they entered an underground chamber where Gary Daly, Harry Clinker, and others had set up a makeshift campsite. As they approached, Mildred Mitchell ran into a tent away from a woman who was questioning her. Casey Kristoff, a janitor at the First Church of Contention, leaned against a column and read a book. Harry was relieved to see them all safe. Gary introduced Clara Blankenship, a woman from the city. She was here visiting friends whose cat had disappeared and who recently joined the First Creek family of Contention to find the kitty. The FCFC collected all the animals in Contention behind the fish wall. They discussed Clara's tattoo, which portrayed a robed figure that carried a ball of light. It was inspired by a crazy dream she'd had a couple years ago of this figure pulling a ball of light out of a television. Not really paying attention to the important conversation, Keith noticed that Casey seemed to be listening in rather than reading his book. Harry and Clark used smelling salts to rouse Drew Carey, who was over the moon to see Tyler again. She confirmed her assigned task was to bring the trio back to the FCFC so Daddy could hold them accountable for the death of his family and also use Keith to time travel. The officers explained the body swap situation to the others in camp to everyone's astonishment. Then they asked Gary about his experiences with magic, the spell he cast on them as children, and the book they found. They asked Gary what he did with his spell book, and he began to weep. He'd given it to Clark's parents. He was scared that's why Eunice and Jerry were killed. And Gary's grandfather received the book from a figure that looked like the one on Clara's tattoo. John reported a similar figure had given him a note in binary that confessed he had killed the chief's father, Jim Cook. The figure also asked John to say hi to him for him. Clark remembered an incident in the library when he was young. Gary confirmed Clark's memory. That figure from the tattoo had locked them in the library and was chased away by the tall gaunt creatures in suits. Clara then showed them a video from John Peters that had been scrubbed from the internet. He spoke about a strange vision he had during his coma in which he was led to a parallel dimension by a man with a black Nike bag who could burn folks with his hands. Clara queried what a black Nike bag had to do with another world or a person who could burn folks with his hands. John explained his uncle, Don D. Pettymore, had the ability to burn things with his hands. Don called it devil hands, and it was mostly used as a party trick, so John didn't think much of it. But when Clark asked Clara if she'd seen anyone with hot hands in her dreams of the robed figure, it jogged John's mind. See, the last time he'd seen his uncle, they were being pursued by those translucent gaunt alien things in black suits. John needed to know more, so when Keith pulled out the watch he'd stolen from Ferguson, John snatched the timepiece and slapped it on himself. The channel on John's reality began to change as expected, and then it stopped and he saw the kitchen of his childhood home. His daddy, John Lee Pettymore III, younger than John ever remembered seeing him, paced back and forth anxiously. His face turned hopeful as John's mother entered the room, but she slowly shook her head no, and tears poured down her face. 
Her husband rushed to embrace his shaking wife. Her body convulsed rhythmically to the sobs as a negative pregnancy test fell from her grasp onto the cold tile floor. The channel changed. John saw his daddy again, eyes completely wide and bloodshot, knuckles white as he gripped the steering wheel of his black 1977 Pontiac Firebird Trans Am. Backlit by a home completely engulfed in flames, he looked into the rearview mirror to make sure he wasn't being followed. He spoke into a large car phone. The vector adopted by the Kane family has been eliminated. Casualties, unfortunately, include the rest of the family. A Fincher-esque aerial shot of this entire scene slowly zoomed in on the fire, and a young boy crawled out from this completely consumed building. He had a balloon-shaped head and eyes so dark the irises looked black. Back to John's black muscle car as he drove off into the night. The camera did that cool thing where it moved through the license plate into the trunk. And there, a baby swaddled in a black suit jacket laid on top of adoption papers. Back in the contention sewer tunnels, the watch fell off John Lee Kevin Moore III's hand. He slumped to the ground, wide-eyed, dazed, and he repeated three words over and over to himself. Adopted the Vector. As John dry heaved, Keith confessed he'd seen tall, gaunt things in black suits when he was a kid. They'd invaded his family's estate from the sky. Alarms blared. He and Ferguson ran. Security was able to take care of the translucent intruders. That night, Keith watched their father give Ferguson the watch. William said Ferguson was going to be, quote, the savior. And when the time came... The watch would fit. Now that Ferguson was dead, Keith wondered if maybe he was the savior. After all, the watch did fit him. He proved it, and reality changed channels like before. Suddenly, Keith saw Bean's Pond. Three figures stepped over his vision toward the pond. Clark Bishop, Keith Vigna, and John Lee Pettymore III approached the bank of Bean's Pond. John trailed the other two by a few yards. Focused on searching for something in the water, Clark and Keith failed to see their partner betray them. John raised his gun, took a deep breath, and fired two shots, one for each of them. He quickly finished the task with four more bullets, crouched down, and pulled the watch off Keith's inert wrist. John stood, slipped the watch over his bloody hand, and walked slowly into the frigid water of Bean's Pond. Clark and John saw Keith's eyes readjust to their underground reality. However, unlike the other times when one of them came out of a vision, the watch remained on his wrist. Keith and John's eyes met and John saw a great fear. All Keith could see was the black ooze that poured from every orifice on Pettymore's face. He stammered. He'd just seen them all die at the pond. Keith turned back to the goo-covered face of his partner, John Lee Kevinmore, and wearily asked him to please hand over his gun. John moved a hand to his holster, and 
Everyone else in the room nervously sought cover. Keith whispered what his vision revealed into Clark's ear. The paranoia was growing, so the trio decided to share what they had seen in order to grow some trust. John said he'd seen confirmation that he was a child of destiny. His daddy, Kevin Lee Pettymore, was sent to kill the Kane family. He set fire to the house, but Adam managed to escape undetected. More importantly to Kevin, the Canes had recently adopted a little baby. Pettymore stole the baby, adoption papers and all. And that baby was John Lee Pettymore IV. He was meant to be Adam Kane's brother. But he was so much more than that. In the vision, Kevin radioed over to Kaysell that he had, quote, eliminated the vector adopted by the Canes. He, John Lee Pettymore IV, was the vector. Clark told John that Keith's vision was of Kevin Moore III executing them so that he could have the watch. The three argued which of them was most likely to be the savior. Keith, whose family possessed the watch that recently stayed, put on his wrist. John, the original vector, the ball, or Clark, the overseer and future founder of the circle of knowledge in the past. The tension grew and grew until Keith silenced them with the thought that maybe the real deal here was the three of them needed to come together. Maybe they needed each other, like pieces of a puzzle. John agreed they could all potentially be vectors, and Clark reminded them the spell Gary put on them as children was meant for all three. If there was only to be one, quote, chosen one, why would the spell work on three? To make Keith feel better, John handed over his pistol, but immediately regretted his decision and pleaded for its return. As the disagreement continued, the tent at the far end of the underground chamber rustled, and out popped a haggard Mildred Mitchell. She held out a piece of paper in one hand, but promptly put it in her back pocket and held up a picture with her other hand. Flustered, she sputtered that the picture had changed just then in the tent. She said it was John, and then boom, it was Keith. Mildred shoved a picture of the founders of contention into their faces. In the picture was Silas Cole, but she was onto something. It wasn't the Silas Cole the officers remembered learning about in school. That Silas Cole was an extremely handsome man. This Silas Cole had a familiar face. It was Keith Vigna. Clark was the first to put it together. Whoever wore the watch would become Silas Cole. Mildred Mitchell shoved the picture in Keith's face and pointed to a faint reflection of a figure that resembled her granddaughter, Tildy B. Mitchell. Mildred blamed Clark for Tildy's presence in the picture. Clark replied he wasn't the one who loaded and pulled the trigger on the strange gun that sent folks to the past. Tildy had done that herself. During this brouhaha, Keith tried to take the watch off to see how it affected the picture of himself as Silas Cole, but... It didn't budge. The thing wouldn't move. Frantic, his panic grew and grew until he snapped and lunged at Mildred Mitchell. Keith tackled her to the ground and viciously slammed his fist down onto the frail old woman. Clark and John were able to pull Keith off of her, but not before he had beaten Mildred unconscious. Keith looked down at his bloody hands and 
puked. The sick hit a piece of paper that had fallen out of Mildred's pocket in the scuffle. On it, she had written, Ianaha Fursatsaia. Harry and Gary approached with guns drawn on Keith. John put himself between them and Keith as he tried to calm tensions. Keith, frightened and embarrassed, fled down the sewer tunnel that led to Bean's Pond. Harry'd had a dream that if things got too heated, everyone would die. He swiftly and forcefully told the contention officers they needed to leave. Clark asked if Harry and Gary would still be willing to keep an eye on Drew Andrews, and they agreed. The air in the underground chamber was so thick with regret and loss, it was hard to breathe properly. And after turning their backs on the only citizens of contention who had trusted them, John and Clark followed Keith down the sewer tunnel toward Bean's Pond. As they walked through the underground cylinder, Keith continued his attempt to rip the watch away from the skin on his wrist. Tears streamed down his face, and Clark and John attempted to console their partner as they all avoided stepping in the shit sludge that slowly flowed between the walkways that ran along the sewers underneath contention. The trio discussed the probability of each one of them being the savior of contention and perhaps the world. John made things interesting by insisting they take bets on who was actually the chosen one. When they arrived beneath the street across from Bean's Pond, they looked out the drain and saw there was no water in the pond. It had been completely emptied. All that was left was a muddy concavity and a mostly buried metal door. But the three contention police officers saw three different additional objects at the bottom of this barren basin. Clark saw a large aquarium filled with an absurd amount of fish as well as one gaunt little boy, but there were so many fish that the boy couldn't make it up past them to break the surface. He was stuck, drowning. John saw Adam Kane wearing an odd motorcycle helmet with glass tubes and a red light lit. He drew his gun and ordered the pastor to remove his helmet. Keith saw that same helmet sitting in the mud next to the half-buried door, green light lit. A gunfight broke out while the contention police officers were still very much unaware of what was real and what was not. Their grip on reality took a toll, but they were able to eliminate their opposition, which turned out to be Asher and Avery Little, the parents of the twins, Aiden and Alice Little, that unknowingly sacrificed themselves to an ooze-filled vacuum bag in an attempt to save James the Millworker, who still died just two or three episodes later. Suddenly, the trio felt their perception shift back to what they considered standard. However, that reality included a six-story tall wall of water encircling Bean's Pond. Ice formed on the water as fish broke the surface and then broke the theory of gravity as they fell sideways back into the vertical pool. 
and across the empty pond on the opposite bank, just inside this water wall, Casey Kristoff held a pistol to the back of Carrie Pages' body's head. Next to them, Adam Kane gripped the handlebars of the four-wheeler and donned the strange motorcycle helmet, red light lit. Strapped to the back of this four-wheeler was the unnatural radio, green light lit. And atop that bizarre electronic airwave communicator, an extremely determined black cat utilized his claws and held on tight. Surrounded by the water wall, this standoff on either side of the muddy basin stayed still for slightly a second before Keith Vigna rushed down toward the metal door buried equally in between the two groups. However, he ate shit on his drop-in and slid face-first down into the empty bowl. Pastor Adam Kane took the four-wheeler tips down directly toward Keith Vigna. Guns were drawn and aimed, but Casey Kristoff threatened to execute Drew Andrews in the body of Councilwoman Carrie Pages if Clark or John fired at Adam Kane, the former pastor of the First Church of Contention with unsettlingly black eyes and a balloon-shaped head. The current daddy of the First Creek family of contention whipped the back end of his four-wheeler around and sprayed Keith Vigna, already face down in the stuff, with even more mud. And Agent Trent Chad in the body of Salem, Dr. Marie Jacobs' cat, turned on the strange radio and prepared for a body swap. But Keith wasn't going to let his consciousness get ripped out and stuffed into the body of a cat without a fight. He shoved his mechanical cocaine-fingered deep into his nasal cavity and sniffed like his life depended on it. With the glass family special powder coursing through his veins, Keith pulled himself up from the mud and smashed one of the odd glass tubes on the radio just before Agent Cat Chad could initiate the switch. Pastor Daddy Adam Kane, furious, grabbed a fish from his saddlebag, lifted it above his head, and crushed the creature over the odd motorcycle helmet, which activated the green light. And suddenly, the former contention police officers were forced to face very real visions of their biggest regrets. Clark saw the Kane family burning up in their minivan. John watched Aiden and Alice Little become enveloped in the ooze. Keith relived the murder of his only brother, Ferguson. When the party snapped back to their current existence, they realized time had passed. Agent Trent Cat had disarmed John Lee Kevin Moore III, and Adam Kane was in the process of dragging Keith Beans toward the half-buried metal door, which began to slowly slide open. The next six seconds were an absolute whirlwind. Daddy Kane dragged Keith toward the open hatch that, for some reason, existed at the bottom of Bean's Pond. The sound of a fired gun matched up perfectly with Casey Kristoff's trigger hand exploding and spraying blood everywhere like a water balloon popped in slow motion. 
Drew Andrews took advantage and grabbed the fallen gun that had just been pointed at the head of the body he occupied. John looked down and saw that Agent Trent Cat had filled his pistol, named Seth, coincidentally the same name the Kane family originally gave to John, with mud. And as Keith failed in his attempt to fight off Adam Kane, the two of them crashed down into the hole in the ground and the metal plate closed back over the top of them. In that underground room, Keith saw that Kane had been knocked unconscious by the fall, which broke the glass tubes fixed to the strange helmet on Adam's head. Above ground, in the muddy basin that was once Beans' pond, John Lee Kevin Moore slammed his fist down on the closed, half-buried metal door. With advice from John, Keith fired his pistol into both of Kane's feet and then continued into an elevator, his only forward path in this new and underground space. After he descended even further into the earth, Keith arrived at a blast door, which he opened by spinning a heavy metal wheel and lifting a thick metal hatch. Beans entered an unfamiliar underground laboratory in a cave furnished with file-covered workstations, busy shelving, and massive copper vats housed under a giant rock ceiling. And across the enormous lab, there was another blast door with a round window, a porthole where the viewer could potentially see whatever it was that was being kept on the other side. In the files and paperwork, Keith found blueprints for three familiar-looking objects, a gun, a radio, and a camera. There were also a bevy of phrases listed, written in a seemingly ancient and alien language. The goal of one specific incantation seemed to be eternal life, but there were myriad side effects listed. Finally, Beans found the project called Manipulating Activator Robot. Versions A through X were a bust, but Manipulating Activator Robot Y had been a success. That project created silver balls, one inch in diameter, and the acronym spelled M-A-R-Y, Mary. Back above ground, John and Clark yelled to the now-safe Drew Andrews that his body was secured down in the sewers. But suddenly, Anne Love appeared. She revealed herself to be Casey Kristoff's hands executioner and greeted her old cellmate, Kevin, as Clark aimed his weapon at this woman who murdered his parents. She calmly explained that had been done on orders from Jim Cook. After Kaysell fucked over Marvin Glass by stealing all of his cocaine, Jim initiated what was left of his team, literally just her, into the circle of knowledge. Down in the previously undiscovered laboratory below Bean's Pond, Keith Beans recited the words of the spell the document suggested imparted eternal life. His words, however, encouraged his bones to vibrate unnaturally, and his nails began to pop off like carrot and popcorn, and then BOOM! A hearty thud came from something on the other side of the closed, thick metal blast door. 
Clark Bishop, John Lee Kevin Moore III, Drew Andrews in the body of Councilwoman Carrie Pages, and Anne Love stood in the empty beans pond and traded information as Clark and John attempted unsuccessfully to open the impassable metal plate. Clark lied when Anne asked about Leon Simpson's whereabouts, but she was practically congenial as she answered questions about Maggie Cook's brutal takeover of the circle of knowledge and the necessary death of Maggie's own father, her and Kevin's handler and KSL, Jim Cook, due to the revelations of the overseer. She went on about Sanfera Blom and its ability to pacify entire populations, though it didn't work well enough on Clark's parents. As for Myriad, Anne believed it was a shadow organization that actually ran the government. Drew explained that Adam Kane performed the body switch between him and the councilwoman after Drew was kidnapped by Fade. Clark and John explained how to find Harry and Gary, who were babysitting Drew's body down in the sewers, and sent him off on the four-wheeler with the broken radio and Agent Trent Cat. Clark Bishop and two-thirds of the bodies from K-Cell stared down at the impassable metal plate when suddenly the water wall came crashing down. The pond, no longer held back unnaturally, roared back into the muddy basin it had previously called home. Clark was able to swim through the rushing swell, but John's new body, with the modifications the Glass family had implanted in Kevin, sank unable to rise up to breach the quickly ascending surface. But Anne Love wasn't going to let her old K-Cell colleague stay down. She chanted in an unfamiliar tongue. Kevin Moore's heavy metal body unnaturally moved up and after a moment emerged with a gasp for air from the bionic man. Anne continued her incantation and Clark watched in awe from the shore as she and John stood on the surface of Bean's Pond as if it were solid ground. Back down below the impassable metal door and the underground laboratory, a nail-free, impossibly curious Keith Beans peered through the porthole on the thick metal blast door. On the other side, he saw a skeletal creature with skin so thin bones protruded into the dank air. Her nail beds matched Keith's, and bruises and lesions covered the body of this teenage girl. But even through her hideous transformation, Keith recognized Tildy B. Mitchell. With pure hatred in her eyes, she shrieked and slammed her fragile frame into the door of her seemingly eternal prison cell. Keith, startled and shaken, fell backwards onto the ground. The watch on his wrist seemed to activate a small compartment in the ground next to where he landed. In this hidden chamber, there sat an odd revolver adorned with glass tubes and a green light lit. He searched the rest of the floor and found one more clandestine cubby, which contained a silver metal sphere about one inch in diameter. Keith pulled out the crumpled picture of himself as Silas Cole, turned it over, and recited the words written by Mildred Mitchell. Again, Keith's bones vibrated, but then... 
The metal that formed his upgraded glass family body heated up, and his skin, starting with the coke finger, unzipped and bisected the back half from the front half as all the metal detached and fell off of his skeleton. His alloy septum hit the ground with a clank, and cocaine poured endlessly from the skinless face. Empty skin just draped over a partial skeleton, and then, with nerve endings still popping off like the finale of a fireworks show, the pain indescribable, his bones reformed, and his skin sealed itself back around his natural, original physique. Ironically, though, being biologically made whole again demanded the little that was left of Keith's mental stability. Unhinged, Keith walked over to the workstation, stuffed his pockets with blueprints and notes, grabbed the strange gun, already loaded with an old, oddly large single bullet, smiled, and pulled the trigger. A blind! flash of light dissipated and Keith Bean stood on the dirty, sandy road to contention in the year 1880-something. He immediately stripped nude, ran toward a man in the near distance, and called Silas Cole by name as he sucker-punched this stranger whose life and name he was about to take. Keith snapped Cole's neck before the man could speak, rolled him over, and a trifolded piece of parchment fell out of the jacket pocket. It was a job advertisement for the Contention Mining Company, and it read, We is hiring able bodies. Readying untapped sight. Plenty of work. Hesitate not. Anne's miraculous rescue of John Lee Pettymore from the Beans Pond Deluge left John Lee Kevin Moore III and Clark Bishop shook. Anne cackled at their shookethness, and after they expressed desire to learn, she agreed to teach them the spell. It allowed her to do many things, even walking through doors or leaving folks inside walls. Clark's heart sank. He announced he no longer wanted to learn the incantation and turned the conversation toward the book. She needed it. The overseer was coming, and if the circle of knowledge didn't have the book, Maggie said that would be the end of everything. John and Clark played it cool and didn't let on that the overseer was likely standing right in front of her. They asked what this overseer was supposed to do when he came. According to the revelation of the overseer, Jim would die. Maggie believed it was, as the phrase went, only through death that he may rise again. The overseer founded the circle of knowledge. It was only fitting he would come back at the end of everything to save it. Considering the door at the bottom of Bean's Pond said Keith was the savior of the world and he believed Clark to be this all-important overseer, John asked Anne if, hypothetically, there was a third cool thing for a third special person. He was given the answer when his shattered sense of self betrayed the ruse that he was indeed Karen's KSL partner, Kevin and he revealed that he was Ball. Anne was curious about its mindset. Did it think it was human? Anne was all too familiar with balls, or vectors as she called them. Kaysel's mission 
had been to eliminate the vectors that were implanted in babies at Cole's Orphanage, new school under modern etiquette, and to wipe all records of its existence. John fumed. Clark asked Anne to define her goals. The best case scenario, based on what Maggie told her, was to acquire the book in order to summon the overseer to save the world. Anne made an offer. If they showed her the book, she would get them through the impassable metal door at the bottom of Bean's Pond. Clark and John turned their backs in a huddle to confer and decide the best course of action. A decision was not reached before a chanting Anne surprised them both by driving a large knife down through John's skull. Clark speared her back down to the ground and wrapped his arms around her windpipe. John shot her in the knee, and Clark dug his fingers into the squirting, fresh wound. Anne clenched her jaw so fucking tight, her teeth shattered, and she spit the shards into Clark's face as she broke his grapple and resumed chanting. This new incantation telekinetically pushed her blade deeper into John's skull, and blood gushed down his face like a chocolate fountain. As John screamed and fell to his knees, Clark saw the knife move further down through the back of his throat. Anne jumped up and kicked down onto the butt of her knife, and John fell face first, unmoving into the sloshing mud. She turned to Clark and demanded the book. He was stunned. Why did she kill John? Her answer was simple. The Vector was her mission. John Lee Kevinmore III, face down in the mud, felt his ball reach out to the collective unconscious of the entire universe to pick out specific memories. His vision showed Gary Daly pass a book made of uncured leather with acne and stretch marks along the binding over to Eunice and Jerry Bishop. Reality turned and changed, and inside the Bishop home, Clark's parents hid the book in a safe with an alphabetical keypad entry below their television inside a hidden compartment within the entertainment center. Barely clinging to life, John lifted his knife-clogged head from the muck in the mire and told Anne he knew where the book was was. Anne chanted, swiftly withdrew her blade, made a bloodletting cut on her own hand, and a stream of her blood coagulated to fill the vacant wound. Clark's mind snapped. He ripped the knife away from Anne and mirrored her actions step by step. He chanted, made a cut on his thumb, and similarly, the blood flowed over and into John's orifices, healing him. This new power confirmed Clark's suspicions. He was the overseer. He screamed as he executed the woman who killed his parents. They didn't need her anymore. Clark Bishop plunged Anne Love's own knife into her skull and she died. As they walked to the bishop house, the pair heard screams from the direction of the first church of contention. Clark assured John that when they found the book, 
the return of the overseer, his return, would fix everything. When they arrived, John revealed a false compartment beneath the television. Inside his entertainment center, Clark found a safe with an alphabetical keypad entry. He remembered the words of his mother. Life is like the bonus round. We were already given the best letters. He typed in R-S-T-L-N-E and the door unlocked. Inside was a book bound in uncured leather with some acne scarring and stretch marks on the spine. Clark grabbed the book and his vision turned blank. Suddenly, he stood in the abandoned water park Splashylvania. He looked up at the two-fanged plunge and Julie Maxwell fired a bullet through Leo Piston. Clark raised his firearm and shot Julie Maxwell, whose body joined Leo's as they slumped and slid down the pair of intertwining water slides. Then, he was in the street outside of Dr. Marie Jacobs' house. He saw James the millworker float off the ground as Aiden and Alice Little bravely held a vacuum up to the man's feet. The vacuum bag burst open and a squamous black ooze covered the twin children. Clark saw the children fight violently against the muck that encompassed them. He looked over to John. The residue dripped from every orifice in his face. With another blink, Clark sat in a cage with a gaunt young boy above a debaucherous crowd. Electric shocks racked their bodies, and the ceiling slowly descended. Clark didn't want to do it, but it was either one of them died, or they both died. Clark pushed the boy back into the juice box just as the ceiling came down and squeezed the boy pulp all over the crowd below. Another blink and Clark saw himself all over CSU campus in a grotesque montage. Murder after murder after murder. It culminated in the moment when Clark jammed a sharpened screwdriver into his own eye until the handle was flush with his socket. Blood dripped down his face and Clark Bishop crumpled to the ground, limp and lifeless. Blink, Clark stood in the muddy water of Bean's Pond. He knew what he was capable of, what he was. He buried the knife into Anne Love, the woman who murdered his parents. A final blink. He was back in the living room of his parents' house. His hands were covered in blood, and the blood moved between the covers of the book and formed new pages, a record of his actions. The book flung open, and these new pages flitted indecisively before they settled on a page on which Clark's blood formed the letters of a new incantation over a picture of a hooded figure that was clearly a young Clark Bishop. Compelled, Clark chanted the spell again and again. John saw a blinding flash of light and then Clark disappeared as if he had never been there. Clark was gone. The book was gone. John pressed play on the VCR, laid down on the couch, and watched some Wheel of Fortune. But Clark? 
Clark stood in a dark alley on the night of December 1st, across from a man he recognized as Jim Cook, the man who gave the orders to murder his parents, the handler of KSL, a member of Myriad, the former leader of the Circle of Knowledge, Maggie Cook's father, Jim Cook. Clark remembered what happened next. He'd seen it in a dream. Before he could think, Clark pounced on it. His hands wrapped around Jim's neck as he growled. They didn't have to die. They didn't have to die. You couldn't find it. They didn't have to die. His grip tightened and Clark Bishop felt the passing as Jim Cook's life was extinguished. something when this land was stolen and pioneer towns began to form keith beans pretended to be silas cole as a miner in the mine that employed the town of contention while down in the mines keith bean came upon a familiar odd black substance and he became obsessed with studying it the substance was invisible to others but not to cole He utilized blueprints he had stolen from the hidden laboratory underneath Bean's Pond and exploited the residue's unnatural qualities. Silas Cole became an inventor. He made so much money off of his inventions that he bought the mine. He built an office on the top floor of the tall skinny mining company building that sat right above the mine itself. He harvested the substance and acquired a much firmer grasp on its tendencies. Keith Beans invented wild, magical things, like ceiling fans. Each new invention brought him wealth and power, but also released more of this inky residue into his town. To satisfy his newfound hubris, he began working on the creation of a manipulating activator robot, or ball, as they had been called in his past life. Versions A through X were a bust, but Y was successful. The project formed a silver ball, one inch in diameter, and Mary Cole was spawned. Sometime thereafter, Keith Beans got a blast from the future, his past. Tilde B. Mitchell appeared on his property in a blind and flash of light. He became paranoid the townsfolk would see her and realize he was also from the future. Consumed, he decided this town wasn't big enough for the two of them, and since Tilde B. couldn't exist, 
She made for an excellent test subject. But some of those tests turned her real rambunctious like. He went to work on building a secret subterranean workshop where he could hide her away and continue working on his inventions, some of which he was scared to share with his newly minted confidant, Mary Cole. But before it was finished, the mutated Tilda B. Mitchell got out and caused some real trouble. She'd gotten loose before and took out basically the whole saloon staff, but this? This was trouble with a capital T, which rhymed with C, and that stood for covered up barely. Shoot, there were suddenly four good people missing. Everett Pace, a homesteader, Professor Horace Green, a professor, Jack Perlman, a rancher, and finally, preacher sheriff Dr. Bobby Custard all disappeared. The heat was on. We'll end here with the supposed words of Roy Bean, a horrible man and judge from Texas known for hanging folks who actually didn't really hang many folks. He allegedly said, you can't tell how good a man or a watermelon is till they get thumped. Hmm. Can't you hear the wolves are howling all around my poor little darling? All around my poor little darling, I'm afraid they'll get my darling. Can't you hear them wolves are howling all around my poor little darling? All around my poor little darling, I'm afraid they'll get my darling. I have to hop in here to give the shoutest of outs to Haiku Jason. This fucker right here helped me out Peter Gabriel style big time. They wrote six episode recaps and they were good too. Jason earned themselves a shirt. So one final thank you to Jason, I Shot Marvin, Here Be Tigers, Crush 36, Stingray, and Dylan B. Y'all made this process so much easier to bear. Shirts all around. As for the rest of you, I sought advice from Taylor on what to say here, and she said to just be honest. Well, the truth is, I still really love playing Delta Green with my best friends, and I still really love making this show, but I was completely unprepared for how much work this job over here in Korea was going to be. I signed up for like 100 hours a month, easy peasy, I thought, but I'm basically working full time with a commute on top and working with six to 12 year olds is fucking exhausting and it has clearly gotten the better of me. So uh, my contract ends in a little over two months and I am looking forward to having more time to deliver the quality content I believe in at the release rate I think you deserve. Even more than that, I'm just fucking stoked to keep role-playing with my friends on a regular basis. I've missed it so much. So while I'd love to give you an exact date for our next episode and say that we'll be back to the weekly format, I'm really afraid, like I'm really afraid I won't be able to deliver and that will destroy me. So as 
Taylor suggested, I'll just tell you the truth. Episode 100 will be out as soon as I can get it finished. I'm shooting for like two weeks from now. Uh, From there, I do believe we'll be able to release on a more consistent schedule. Uh, But we do have some super fun irons in the fire. Merch, bonus episodes, guests, it's all happening. Thank you all so much who have stuck by us and continued to re-listen to all the episodes and care about this story we've spent so much time creating together. I promise... This is not even close to the end of pretending to be people. We have so much more smoke in the tank. Honestly, the thing I'm most scared of is trying to find a jam for season two that's even close to as banging as this new track I just heard like 85, 86 minutes ago. It was um, Kudzu with no backbone. Kudzu with no backbone. Kudzu with no backbone. Kudzu with no backbone. <laughs>